This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Annie, is it time for turkey? Is it? Is it turkey time? I think it's turkey time. Turkey time! As we record this, here in the U.S., Thanksgiving is fast approaching. And for a lot of people, that means stuffing themselves and stuffing a turkey. Mm. I guess most people do that, don't they? I'm not sure. I, I prepare mine on the side now because of, like, salmonella concerns. But Okay. Well, already I have more homework to do. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so. So turkey. What is it? What? It, it, it's a bird. It's, it's a plane. No. It, no, it's. It's that first thing. It's just a bird. It's just a bird. Yeah, that's one of the few things that's generally agreed upon about the turkey. And I found that kind of surprising. There's a lot of debate about um, turkey facts. Lots of turkey debate, yes. <laughs> because of naming confusion, mostly. Yes. Yes. Um, there are two living types of turkey. Meliagris galapavo, or the wild turkey, and the Meliagris ocellata. Also, the Agricarus oscillata, or the oscillated turkey. Oscillated turkey. I know. In 2007, they were reclassified as subfamily Meliangridae. Probably added an extra syllable in there. The pheasants are the turkey's closest relatives. They're cousins. Hmm. Oh. 
And as for that name and confusion, I'm sure a lot of you have heard that the turkey was named such not because it's from the country Turkey, which it's not. Nope. Spoiler alert! But because it passed through a shipping route in Turkey, and people got all confused. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that in a minute. But yeah, just just suffice it to say. Lots of naming nonsense involved with Turkey here.、Mm-hmm. And in Turkey, since they knew the bird wasn't native, obviously it is called Hindi because they thought it was from India, which is also not. No, the French made a similar mistake, calling it poulet dind or chicken from India,、uh, which is where the modern word dind comes from. In some dialects in India, it's called Peru. <laughs> I can't imagine calling that. Anyway, I guess it's just as ridiculous as turkey. Sure,、um, we're less less ridiculous actually, because at least turkeys are like sort of that's from true. You are right. That side of the planet,、right. anyway. <laughs> yeah. With imperialism, things got even messier. In Cambodia, the word for turkey translates to French chicken. Malaysia to Dutch chicken. My favorite is its 1725 official scientific name of Meleagris galapavo galapavo. Which is a combination of Greek and Latin roots that comes out to mean guinea fowl, chicken, peacock, chicken, peacock. Not、mm. a single one. No, is correct. None of that is right. Yeah, <laughs> and complicating matters throughout history, words for the guinea fowl and turkey were used interchangeably. So, where is it actually native to? <laughs> exactly where it is native to North and Central America, and along with the Descovy duck, it is one of only two native birds domesticated in the New World. Ah,、mm. um, according to the history of food, turkey is the only domestic fowl we eat today that did not appear on Roman tables. Hmm. Hmm. We're both giving each other suspicious looks. <laughs> turkeys, and for the most part, we're talking about wild turkeys and not the oscillated variety. Although they're pretty much the same-ish, they're large and fairly distinctive-looking. I'd say these birds grow up to 45 inches tall, about <gasps> 115 centimeters, with a wingspan of about six feet or 1.8 meters-ish, and can weigh anywhere from 88 to 381 ounces. Ooh, this means they are the largest bird you'll encounter roaming in North American forest, probably. Never say never. Yeah. The fleshy thing that hangs from their beak—it's called a snood. A snood. A snood. Okay. Yeah. It's typically red, but can be a variety of colors, and it might change color or size depending on the turkey's emotions. Turkeys have color-changing emotion snoods. You guys like like. Like mood rings, like mood rings, mood、yeah. snoods, <laughs> mood snoods. That is so good. Males have bigger ones. They are also larger and more colorful than females. And if you're wondering what snoods are, what they're for, and I was, it seems like mostly indicating they're ready to have sex. Also, it's an indicator of health. The bigger, the better. In the male's case, can I say that I said it? Due to the hazard of infection, we're plowing on. Some farmers have their more aggressive birds desnooded to prevent injury. But anyway, speaking of sex, turkey sex, turkey sex, we're doing it. Okay. When the male turkey is ready to get some, it puffs itself up into a not at all ridiculous looking ball, and its romantic gobbles fill the air. Those、oh. gobbles can be heard by human beings from up to a mile away. Wow, they are piercing gobbles. Well, they want to make sure all the ladies know <laughs> this romantic <laughs> turkey is around. I guess, I guess, like a like a mile is is a small distance on like Tinder or something like that. So that's true. Turkeys <laughs> and Tinder hadn't thought about it. Maybe I'll think about it later, but hopefully not. 
Fingers crossed. <laughs> if the female turkey gets pregnant and gives birth, that male turkey, whew, he is not sticking around. That The female turkey allows the baby chicks to follow her around for a few days, a few days, long enough for them to learn how to find food themselves, and then they're on their own. As they grow, they form bands that can reach up to 200 turkeys in the winter. They mostly get around by walking, but they can fly and swim. Okay, and I can't really compete with the whole snood thing, but I do want to point out here that turkeys also have some other pretty excellently named um, anatomical bits. They've got caruncles, which are these fleshy bumps on their heads and throats. They've got wattles, which is a flap of skin under their chin, and spurs, which are spikes on the back of their lower legs that males use for sparring. I have to say, if I'd never seen a turkey, this would sound like a very dangerous thing to me or like a bizarre. I'm terrified of birds. So are you really? I mean, not all birds necessarily, but but anything big enough to like anything like larger than a dog. I don't want anything to do with geese are awful. Swans are nightmares. A lot of people in the House Stuff Works office have horror stories about birds. And I have to say, you're the third person I've met in like two weeks that <laughs> said they're scared of birds. So... They're dinosaurs that fly. When you put it that way. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Maybe avoid avoid turkeys. Don't make them mad. On the plus side for me and anyone else afraid of turkeys. Oh, Lauren. The average lifespan is 10 years. Not enough to plot. Excellent. <laughs> yes. And Sorry. that's if they don't run into a hunter first, which... Mm-hmm. Um, though it's native to North and Central America, the turkey has traveled just about everywhere. It's eaten on every continent. Yep. Even Antarctica. Finally. Yeah, where they have a turkey trot on the ice. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And it's now part of Europe's poultry industry, and the highest per capita consumption is in Israel. Hmm. As of 2014, the breeding population of turkeys was 7.8 million, 89% of them living in the U.S., 10% in Mexico, and 2% in Canada. And they are the second most hunted game in the U.S. behind deer. Outside of straight-up turkey meat, you can get turkey bacon, turkey sausage, ground turkey, turkey burgers. You get the idea. Most of what you'll find in supermarkets is the breed, the broad-breasted white, which is bred specifically to have more white meat. On average, they weigh almost double the weight of a turkey you'd find in the wild. Ooh. Yeah. And turkey production dropped very noticeably in several countries in 2008, the thought being that since it's a meat largely reserved for celebrations, it's more vulnerable to economic hardship. Some some people actually, some economists actually use this as a metric for how well a country is doing, how many tur- oh, turkeys really? they produce. Kind of like the lipstick thing? Yeah, totally. The turkeys? Uh-huh. Huh. Uh, the diversification of products has helped a bit with this. Mm-hmm. And in her book, America's First Cuisines, Sophie Coe describes the turkey as, quote, a paradoxical creature being at the same time wild and tame, wary and stupid. Is that fair? Let's- is it? Yeah, I don't know. Let's let's talk about some history here. Yeah, but first, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. 
Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. Since turkeys are large and they have compact bones, they left behind a better fossil record than most birds. Thank you, turkeys, mm-hmm. uh, with some fossils as old as 5 million years. Oh. But the wild turkey is older than even that. It's thought to have evolved around 11 million years ago. Wow. Either way, evidence of humans using turkeys dates back to as early as 800 BCE in Mesoamerica. The first known domesticated fossils are from 300 BCE to 700 CE in that period, and they were found in Tehuacan. So the ancestor of all of today's domesticated turkeys can be traced back to the South Mexican wild turkey. Mm-hmm. And to this day, Mexican cuisine is one of the few in the world, if not the only in the world, that regularly uses turkey in a lot of its recipes. Yeah. Although around the same time, another turkey species was domesticated in the southwestern United States, though they weren't really domesticated for eating, we don't think. Yeah, they were instead used mostly for rituals and for their feathers. And we know about these turkeys thanks to fossilized turkey poop, in case you were wondering. I'm always wondering. I know. (laughs) Uh, Whether or not they were used for eating, by the way, they eventually stopped being domesticated by humans of the area due to a a whole bunch of reasons, mostly falling under the category of European influence and some of its terrors of colonialism. Of course. Aztecs. Yeah. Yeah. Twice a year, the Aztecs threw a festival in the wild turkey's honor, believing it to be a physical manifestation of a trickster god. Pretty cool. Uh, the feathers were used in necklaces, headdresses, and the like. Mm-hmm. The Mayans also enjoyed eating turkey, but since they were a little on the scarce side, they were generally reserved for the more well-off part of society or for rituals. Native Americans along the east coast of North America worked to maintain populations of turkey and deer by uh, by setting controlled fires to clear underbrush in forests and by maintaining the fruit and nut trees that would support those types of populations. And Columbus, <laughs> yep, Columbus shows up again. Mm-hmm. He may have brought them back on his first voyage or his fourth voyage, but in either case, by 1511, the king of Spain ordered that ships voyaging to the New World return to Spain with five male and five female turkeys. 
And when Cortez arrived in 1519, he found that Moctezuma levied about 1,000 turkeys a day, where they were often used for ritual sacrifice. Moctezuma gifted the Spanish with gold and 1,500 turkeys. And in return, <laughs> as thanks, Cortez destroyed the capital. Yay! Um, when turkeys first arrived in Spain, people weren't quite sure what to make of them. An early chronicler of the Spanish Empire identified them as peacocks. And most Europeans knew about peacocks thanks to the Bible, but many common folk had never seen them and regarded them almost as you might a unicorn. Oh, I get that. That seems, I mean, peacocks are pretty incredible, and I've, like, met them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, However, by 1530, this same chronicler noted that turkeys were not merely, quote, peacocks of sober colors. Good. Good that they got that straightened out. (laughs) Of all the New World foods, the turkey was one of the most quickly adopted in Europe, replacing the peacock as a fancy feasting bird due to its rareness, appearance, and taste. In 1561, Italian legislators passed a measure prohibiting turkeys from banquets under the grounds that they were too luxurious. Uh, Both Venice and England had laws in the 1500s prohibiting the eating of turkeys and partridges at the same meal. The laws were kind of like, you know, like, hey, save some of those rare birds for the rest of us, won't you? Yeah. Don't be so greedy. Yeah. Turkeys were in Rome by 1525, part of Spanish poultry farms by 1530, France by 1538, and from there they spread relatively rapidly. Even having them in your backyard was a bit of a status symbol. Louis XIV was very fond of turkeys. A flock was apparently accommodated in luxury at Versailles, and their keeper was titled Captain of the Royal Turkeys. Now that's a title. That is. (laughs) The turkey arrived in England in the 16th century via Englishman William Strickland. The Strickland family incorporated a turkey into their coat of arms. I just looked around as though Jonathan might like, pop <laughs> yeah, up. From every anywhere. time you say his name, he just is like, <laughs> you rang. <laughs> Certainly don't say it three times. Oh, no, don't ever do that. One English chronicler noted that turkeys arrived in 1524, which apparently led to this saying Turkeys, carps, hops, pickerel, and beer came to England in one year. However, the first written record we have of turkeys in England is from Archbishop Cromner in 1541. So you'll have to decide who you're going to believe, the rhyme or Cromner. I don't don't know. It's up to you. It really is. Yeah. And here we get to the name. Okay. Yeah. So. Oh, boy. Uh, During this period, the Ottoman Empire controlled a lot of the trade in the Mediterranean Sea. Europeans often call these merchants turkey merchants. Turkish turkey. Turks. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. At the time, a wild guinea fowl from West Africa was known as a turkey cock in England since it arrived to England via turkey merchants, and a cock derived from the French coq, meaning rooster. Eventually, turkey coq, cock, was shortened to simply turkey. Uh, Corn, similarly, was referred to as turkey corn for a good while. Turkey corn, hmm. Either colonial settlers encountering the turkey in the North American wilderness saw a similarity to the guinea fowl and used the same name, or this could have happened as turkey merchants, arrived with turkey birds, and eventually the name became just turkey. William Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, by the way, uses the word turkey. It was written either in 1601 or 1602, probably. So so at that point, it was common enough. Yeah. He also used the word in Henry V. Here he comes, swelling like a turkey cock. Huh. Yep. In a kind of silly twist, English settlers traveling to the New World brought turkeys with them, only to find 
just so many way bigger turkeys already there in the 1620s. This also means by the time of the Pilgrims' 1621 Thanksgiving feast, Europeans had known about turkeys for a hundred years. At least, yeah. Yeah, and these European turkeys were bred with the North American ones to get a more appealing turkey, decreasing the genetic diversity of the bird. A 2012 study found their DNA is less diverse than chickens or pigs. Huh. Oh, and also they were primarily bred for their feathers until somewhere around 1935 when the focus shifted to meat. Hmm. And that lack of diversity is problematic for a couple of reasons, the main one being increased susceptibility to being wiped out by something like avian flu. Scientists are pushing to take the sperm and eggs of rare turkey lineages and cryopreserve them. I really just wanted to say cryopreserve. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's also genetic diversity is very important. Um, Also very important is that time in every episode when we mentioned Benjamin Franklin. I know. These people come up so much. And by these people, I mean Benjamin Franklin, Columbus, and, Christopher Columbus. and Jefferson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in 1776, Benjamin Franklin suggested the wild turkey as the American national bird as opposed to the bald eagle. He believed the turkey to be more proud and noble than that brash thief, the bald eagle. Or did he? Oh. Twist. <laughs> According to the United States Diplomacy Center, this is false. Because Benjamin Franklin put forth a national seal that didn't have any birds. And the main reason this myth exists is courtesy of a 1962 New Yorker cover with an imagining of what the great seal would look like if the turkey was the national bird. It wasn't until the seal had been designed that Franklin sent his daughter a letter pontificating about birds. Although pontificate he did, yes. He did. For my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen as the representative of, of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. Ah. He does not get his living, honestly. For in truth, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird and withal a true original native of America. Eagles have been found in all countries, but the turkey was peculiar to ours. He's besides, though a little vain and silly, a bird of courage and would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. (laughs) Those are strong thoughts about turkeys. Um, So, yeah, probably not true, or, or at least he wasn't fighting for it on the committee or anything. No. No. The first recipe calling for Americans to stuff their turkeys is from 1792. Why do you hesitate saying that? <laughs> it's so much less grand than than turkeys fighting the redcoats. I that I can't. Well, oh. it's that's difficult to top. Yes. <laughs> Well-known French gastronome Jean Offlem Bouillard-Savarin wrote about the wild North American turkey's superior taste to its European counterpart in 1794. He called turkeys, quote, the best gift of the new world to the old. Ooh. He also advised readers to at least find a place to let the birds have some space, sort of like the modern-day equivalent to cage-free. But the 1800s were not a good century for turkeys in the U.S., Deforestation with industrialization and overhunting massively reduced their numbers. Turkeys were totally gone from Connecticut, Vermont, New York, and Massachusetts by around 1847, uh, when one of the last wild New England turkeys known to science was shot, taxidermied, and put on display at Yale. Whew. Though locals reported hearing turkeys calling each other from the wintry hills of Mount Tom, a very aptly named local geographical feature 
male turkeys are called toms, into the early 1850s. It sounds like a horror story you tell around the campfire. I agree. The locals still say they can hear the turkey gobble. (laughs) It should be one if it's not already. I'm going to go write it right now. (laughs) As a result, conservation efforts such as trapping and relocating were implemented and were generally successful. Though it would take about 100 years. Uh, But yes, uh, really successful. There were... Other wild animal conservation and reintroduction programs around the time, by the way, uh, Boston and Philadelphia both released squirrels as curiosities, and people freaked out with utter joy. Oh, <laughs> Very, very interesting. Squirrel aside. Yeah, squirrel aside. Around this time in 1843, Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol published, wherein the poor Cratchit family were about to dine on a Christmas goose. A sad Christmas goose. A sad one, yeah, uh-huh. that's, that's right, that's an important fact. Until a newly nice Scrooge showed up with an enormous turkey. Uh, the association with Christmas has been around pretty much since the turkey arrived in Europe, though. In 1570, Englishman Thomas Tusser wrote that the domesticated turkey made up Christmas husbandly fair for commoners. However, it was around the 19th century when it really cemented its place as a Christmas food. Lots of regional varieties of cooking turkey arose in this time, from stuffing and roasting in North America and France, La Varenne suggested stuffing turkeys with truffles or raspberries. And in Spain, turkeys got soaked in brandy, and there was even a practice of giving turkeys brandy while they were still alive. Drunk turkeys, no thank you. No. Mm-mm. In, no. I know. <laughs> they're scary enough. In 1863, President Lincoln, who was the president to proclaim Thanksgiving an official holiday, may have started the tradition of pardoning a turkey and this dispatch, quote, a live turkey had been brought home for the Christmas dinner, but Lincoln's son Tad interceded in behalf of its life. Tad's plea was admitted and the turkey's life was spared. Oh. Oh, yeah. However, it wasn't until President George H. W. Bush in 1989 that the tradition really became a tradition. Before that, some presidents were given turkeys, but like pardoning it was 1989. So pretty, pretty recent. I had no idea. Mm Mm-hmm. Whether or not the turkey was eaten at that first Thanksgiving feast is not known for certain, but since it was associated with feast and it's also pretty American, it was kind of the obvious choice for the Thanksgiving meal. Today, 90% of American households eat turkey on Thanksgiving. Whew. Yeah. And then innovations in poultry production after World Wars I and II and an increased breeding by farmers meant that U.S. farms were producing millions of turkeys a year by 1940s. Basically, a few things happened kind of sort of all at once here. Uh, first, you had widespread creation and dissemination of electric Farming technology. Ooh, ah. Ooh. Uh, pre- previously, the size of your flocks was limited by your, your local climate and your ability to create climate-controlled living areas for turkeys. And having a bunch of, of coal or gas-burning generators sitting on your farm isn't ideal because of all that, you know, air and noise pollution. With power provided from the electric grid and heaters from the gas grid, farms could more easily and cheaply provide ventilation and temperature and humidity control for their birds. They could also offset the time-consuming labor of feeding and watering birds to mechanical devices. Second, you had medical technologies providing new ways to house a large number of birds without fear of disease. Antibiotics! Whoa! 
this is a whole other issue that we're going to talk about later. Yep. Yeah. And throwback to our frozen food episode and the tale that Swanson Turkey TV dinners was due to a glut in turkey production. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, wild turkey conservation efforts had not been forgotten. In 1972, 37 wild turkeys from the forest of New York states were relocated to the forest of Massachusetts. And upon this, we all found out some stuff about turkeys. Okay, they've got like a rep for being silly or dumb, but turkeys know what's up. These relocated turkeys looked around their new Massachusetts forests, you know, full of more scrub than grub, and looked at the nearby farmlands, which humans had just gone on and planted full of stuff. And so the turkeys basically moved into the farmlands. (laughs) But they weren't done. The turkeys then migrated east towards the coast and into the Boston metro area. Humans had filled these areas with all of these well-kept lawns full of seeds and insects. This sounds hilarious, maybe, but wild turkeys in human habitats can be a problem. They're aggressive. In their native flocks, turkeys practice pecking order, yes, a real thing, in which they show dominance by pecking at lower-status birds. So if they want to establish themselves in a human neighborhood, they may attack people that they consider subordinate. Oh, yeah. But there's turkeys in my old neighborhood. And then when I would run, they'd come at me. They would chase me. Yeah. Uh, I'd run faster, though. So, In 2013, a turkey terrorized suburban school children in the Boston area to the point that the authorities euthanized it. Wow. Harvard students have created a Facebook page for their local turkeys. Personal interests... Uh, listed on this Facebook page include reading, waddling, not using crosswalks, and not giving a That sounds about right. It's currently estimated that the turkey population in Massachusetts is about 25,000 birds, though, and they're officially classified as a game bird again. So we've come come a long way. Yeah. The turducken (laughs) makes its debut in 1986, trademarked by celebrity chef Paul Prudhomme. For those that don't know, this is a chicken stuffed inside a duck stuffed inside a turkey. Mm-hmm. Uh, the late 80s saw another turkey trend, deep fried turkeys. A little bit more about that in a bit. In the 1990s, we start to see turkey bacon. The copyright for, for turkey was granted in 1995. And that just about brings us to today. Whew, yeah. So let's talk about some science. But first, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. 
like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. So, does turkey make you sleepy? Sort of? Sort of? Sort of. Okay, let's talk tryptophan. This is the chemical uh, that people cite for making you sleepy post-Thanksgiving dinner. Although that's actually a combination of things, maybe including tryptophan? Okay. Okay, tryptophan is an amino acid that's found in lots of foods, which is good because our bodies can't manufacture it. It's one of the components that cells in our brains use to make niacin, which in turn gets used to make serotonin. Tryptophan is also a precursor to melatonin. And serotonin and melatonin are neurotransmitters that can help relax us and encourage sleep. That is an extreme simplification of what's going on. Neuroscientists aren't entirely sure what's going on there. Just roll with me on this one. Um, But so it's no easy thing for chemicals to make it into our brains, like tryptophan. The blood-brain barrier is, is one of those things that chemists really struggle with because, like, A, not everything can just pass straight from the blood into the brain, and B, the things that can pass in are basically in competition with each other. It's like a like a crowd of people who all want a new iPhone, you know, so it's first come, first served, and there tends to be like a bottleneck at the doors. Usually, eating foods rich in tryptophan won't have much of an effect on you because they contain other amino acids that are competing for access to your brain. Makes sense. But during Thanksgiving dinners, we also tend to eat a lot of carbohydrate-rich foods, all those breads and stuffings and potatoes and corn and tubers that you've candied and covered in marshmallow before you even get to dessert, plus actual dessert. All of this triggers our guts to release insulin to uptake and process all of those sugars and a whole bunch of amino acids as well. But insulin doesn't tend to affect tryptophan. Tryptophan hitches a ride on the protein albumin, thus making it unavailable to insulin. So with most of the competition out of the way, thanks to all that insulin, it is easier for tryptophan to get into our brain and start the process that leads to the production of more serotonin and therefore more relaxation slash sleepiness. Melatonin, however, is produced outside of the brain-blood barrier, and its production isn't necessarily affected by the tryptophan plus carbs scenario. A bunch of other stuff has to be floating around, too. And, like I said a minute ago, lots of foods are rich in tryptophan. Soy, spinach, crab, lobster, goat, and egg whites are all higher in tryptophan than turkey, and basically all meat, like whether it comes from something that flies, walks, or swims, probably contains a pretty good amount of it. What may be contributing here as well is that part of your nervous system is set up to prime your body for maximum nutrient absorption every time we eat. Uh, part of this is called our rest and digest response. Uh, when we eat, we, we excrete more saliva and gastric juices and our heart rate and blood pressure lower. Uh, plus, 
our bodies are sending more blood to the guts to 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 help out with all that process, uh, meaning that less is available for the brain and skeletal system, all of which can make you feel uh, lethargic, kind of limb heavy and relaxed. Kind of sounds like food coma. Yeah, yeah, totally. But you know, it's just not entirely tryptophan's fault. Right. It's more that you. It's just more ate you a just lot. ate a whole bunch. That makes sense. Of anything. Right. Yeah. Uh, and P.S. If you drink booze during Thanksgiving, yes, that can make you sleepy too. There's a lot of things happening that that could be the cause of your sleepiness. It's multifactored. Yes. Well, what about this question? Are turkey products better for you than beef or pork? Well, this is an extremely short Killjoy corner in which I tell you to read food labels. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, if you're eating turkey as a substitute for mammals because you don't want to eat mammals, then, well, okay, still read food labels because it's a good practice. Uh, but if you're going for the health benefits of turkey, then do yourself a little bit of research. Uh, compare the nutrition labels of processed foods, like like turkey bacon or turkey-based frozen meats or soups or whatnot, with the labels of similar beef and or pork products, uh, chicken too, for that matter. It can be trickier with fresh meat, but most large grocers should label the uh, protein-to-fat content of their ground meats. Uh, large packaged meat producers now use nutrition labels, and local butchers should be able to talk you through fat content um, and salt content for stuff like sausages. But basically, uh, turkey on the whole is a leaner meat than most others, but processing changes that. Uh, turkey bacon tends to be a little less fatty, but equally as salty as pork bacon. Ground turkey tends to be just as fatty as ground beef. And here's the part where we get back to those antibiotics that we mentioned earlier. Ooh. Oh. Uh, okay, so as we discussed briefly in our industrialized turkey technology section, a few factors have allowed turkey farms to go from like a 1,000 birds maximum to maybe 400,000 birds maximum over the past like 100 years. This has led to uh, much cheaper poultry, but also a couple of problems. Um, the, the quality of life of the birds and the potentially dangerous use, or overuse rather, of antibiotics. Generally, free-range or pastured bird farming is more humane to the animals than the uh, practice of, of more cloistered cage farming. Mm -hmm. And a common but unfortunately unreported practice in agriculture is keeping animals, especially the closer that you kind of crowd them in, on low doses of continual antibiotics, usually through their food supply. This can help keep whole flocks or, or herds healthier and can promote faster or better growth. But the levels of use of antibiotics in both humans and animals has led to some bacteria developing what you've probably heard of uh, called an antibiotic resistance, which is this very scary thing wherein the bacteria cannot be killed with antibiotics. So there's no way to treat certain diseases that are either a pain in the proverbial rear, like, say, chlamydia, or even fatal, like a staph infection uh, produced pneumonia. However, um, most of the antibiotics that are used in turkeys are of a class called ionophores, which are not used in humans, but some other antibiotics that are used in turkeys are used in humans, and there is some concern about having residual amounts of those drugs left over in the meat or being washed out into the water system and getting into various other stuff. Yeah. So that's bad. A few big brands have stopped using this preventative dosing, uh, but in the United States, at any rate, doing so is completely voluntary. Hmm. So, recommendation. 
if you care about these things and can afford a more expensive bird, I would say to look for labels like Free Range or Pasture Farmed, plus no antibiotics. Lots of local farmers markets and butchers can help hook you up. Even your big grocery butcher counter should be able to talk you through some choices. Mm-hmm. And a further recommendation, if you're looking for something to kind of uh, crack you up, I would look up the early ads for turkey bacon. Ooh. Where they were trying so hard to tell you how much healthier it was than pork or beef. Oh. You poor, poor soul who doesn't know. <laughs> I... I mean, I thought they were pretty they were they were a little heavy handed, I'll say. I see. Mm-hmm. I can't believe that any commercial would ever be no, heavy handed. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. So that uh, brings us to um, Yeah, that that ends my Killjoy Corner. Yay. Yay. So we're gonna insert a little bit more joy. <laughs> yeah. Um okay, so since Ben Franklin's stirring words about the turkey, the turkey's kind of become the butt of many jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, turkey shoot, the saying, refers to something that is easy and one-sided since turkeys aren't the best flyers and have a somewhat ungainly gait, which makes them easier targets. You've got gobbledygook, referring to the turkey's gobbling. I don't understand. I thought it was romantic, but it means ridiculous <laughs> or nonsense. Even the word turkey itself has become something of an insult in the U.S., and this seems to date back to the 1920s as a show business term for a show or movie that didn't do well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By the what ni- a turkey. Yeah, what a turkey. I lost so much money on that turkey. By the 1950s, <laughs> it became a more widespread and generalized insult, meaning someone inept or stupid. And the phrase talk turkey, meaning to speak frankly about something, comes from an old joke about how this white dude counting out his game with his Native American partner was divvying up all the turkeys for himself, prompting his hunting pal to say, you only talk crows to me, you never talk turkey. That, but more racist. I kind of cleaned it up a bit. Mm. Um, This is probably where cold turkey originates from, too. Huh. Yeah. I was just kind of curious about all these turkey sayings and how how they occurred. Yeah, absolutely. This brings us to a little bit of uh, turkey cooking Oh, yeah. Conceptualization. Yeah. And, okay, all right, so this is the kind of thing, turkey cooking technique, that causes some some strife in group cooking situations around the holidays. It's already tense. You've got your aunt or uncle there who you really don't like, may or may not be drinking. Anyway, um, turkey brining and basting, or turkey brining versus basting, I suppose I should say. We're going there. We're going there. Oh, boy. All right. I, I don't want to offend that aunt or uncle. I'm sure they're really nice. I just want to give you some turkey science. That's all we want. Take it and keep the peace however you need to. As I mentioned in my turkey nutrition segment, turkey is a leaner meat than most. Uh, since fats are part of what keep meats juicy as you cook them, turkey can, as we have all found, wind up drier than you really want from something that you're going to like eat and not, say, use as a coaster. One of the old-school recommendations for keeping turkey moist is basting it frequently as it roasts. But, y'all, like one of the most delightful parts of a whole roast bird can be the skin. Mm-hmm. You just have to keep it crispy. And continually drenching it in juices will not let that happen. So basting is out. <gasps> I know. Wow. It's, yep, sorry, that's it. Done. <laughs> one of the newer recommendations is to brine the turkey overnight or for a couple days before cooking. That is to submerge it in a salted water bath. 
And the idea here is that the salt will help loosen up the protein fibers in the meat, uh, allowing them to absorb water. When you cook it, those loosened fibers won't contract as much as untreated muscle fibers would. That that uh, contraction in untreated meat squeezes out juice, drying out the final product. So the brined meat, therefore, retains a bunch of that added water moisture, making it juicier. Huzzah! No. No? No. No huzzah? Well, okay, I mean, it certainly works, but unfortunately, it leads to a rather bland bird. Ugh. The moisture is just lightly salted water, after all. And seasoning the water doesn't really make a difference because most flavor compounds are too big to make it past the cell walls into the meat. Also, brining is like a serious pain. Have you ever done this? Like, turkeys are big. You have to, like, get a bucket. You have to put a whole bucket of turkey in your fridge for, like, days when you're trying to throw a Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, there's a lot of things competing for that space. There is. Okay, so the current best recommendation that I have seen and thanks, by the way, to Serious Eats for breaking all of this down for the good of all of us, is to do a dry brine or a kind of curing. Hmm. In this method, you salt the turkey and then let it rest in the fridge for like 12 to 24 hours. And in this case, what's happening is, is that the salt draws out some of the turkey's juices. The salt then dissolves in those juices. And as the meat rests, the, the salty juice gets reabsorbed into the meat, where, where the salt does that work of loosening those proteins so that they won't contract so much during cooking. Thus, the meat stays juicy, if a little less juicy than a wet brined bird, and the juice tastes like turkey because it's turkey juice, not water juice, or just water, as most people would say. So, huzzah. Yeah. Oh, actual huzzah this time. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Maybe I'll give this a try. It's one of those things where if I suggest it and I'm wrong, it'll be oh, a, oh. it'll be a big deal. Okay. I won't live it down. Maybe I'll maybe I'll like try it first and then let me know. And let you know. Okay. I'll just be like, "Hey roommates, we're having an early turkey <laughs> for science." Please. Please okay. do. <laughs> uh meanwhile, Fried turkey? Of course. Of course. Someone was like. Ever deep fried a turkey, Annie? No, and I've heard horror stories. <laughs> um, I really want to try the meat. I don't want to try it. I, I, Doing it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I want no. to eat the final product. It yeah. sounds like it can be delicious. Yeah. Well, okay. The, the guy who popularized the deep fried turkey is this uh, Cajun chef personality uh, by the name of Justin Wilson. The practice may in fact have come from Creole, Louisiana. The practice, of course, being hanging an entire dang turkey from like the spiky metal apparatus and lowering it into a vat of 400 degree boiling oil for like four minutes, which if you ever cooked a turkey is so significantly less Oh yeah, time than you would normally cook a turkey, mm-hmm. like by a factor of like a hundred. Like it's it's huge, or that's the wrong way to use factor. You guys know what I mean. Yeah. Um, it's a lot shorter. He claims that he first witnessed someone doing this in the 1930s. He made it a delicacy in the 1970s, and by the late 1980s, it was such a trend. That the National Turkey Federation put out a press release about it in 1987. That sounds like some serious business. <laughs> they they wanted to warn folks that consuming homemade deep fried turkeys was like, and I quote, staring into a loaded double-barrel shotgun. One barrel is a cardiologist's nightmare. The other is a microbiologist's worst dreams come true. So, yes, very serious. <laughs> it's, it, what they were saying was that, you know, because it's it's fried, and so that's, you know, 
not really heart healthy, and, and then there's the potential for undercooked poultry meat, which is disease-ridden maybe. So, Yeah. Well, that didn't stop people from doing it, it did it? It certainly didn't, and there are all of the terrifying YouTube videos to prove it. Yes, there certainly are. <laughs> let's, uh, let's close here on a different type of turkey advice. Advice for if a turkey is attacking you or something you own. Very practical. Turkeys will charge repeatedly at reflective things, perhaps thinking it's another turkey, one who is not backing down. So cover any reflective objects, uh, hubcaps, anything like that. And most important, according to uh, officials of the Massachusetts government, don't let turkeys intimidate you. It's a quote. They said to not be afraid to scare or threaten a bold, aggressive turkey with loud noises, swatting with a broom, or water sprayed from a hose. Once negative behavior is established, they warn it can be difficult to change. And, like, these are 5 to 25-pound dinosaurs. So, you know, heed. Can't teach an old turkey new tricks. You can't. <laughs> Take caution. Really? Don't let that turkey boss you around. No. Stand up for yourself. <laughs> okay, so that's the turkey. Um, if you are listening to this around Thanksgiving in either Canada or the U.S., have a nice Thanksgiving, and I hope this didn't put you to sleep. Yeah. It was the food. It was, it was the not food. the podcast. Not us. Definitely no not us. No. Too much interesting facts in here. <laughs> and uh, this brings us to some listener mail. Listener mail. Christina wrote in response to our Space Foods episode, I'm writing to you from Houston, a.k.a. Space City, from home of NASA's mission control. A friend of mine is a researcher for NASA, currently exploring a variety of options preparing to make a mission to Mars possible. Yeah. One project they worked on was using food as a way to boost crew morale. As you noted in your show, having the psychological need of actually eating food versus a pill is important. Additionally, if you were on a long trek to Mars to the tune of 2.5 years, variety of food would be nice, right? Maybe a little entertainment, too? Well, here's the fun part. They have a 3D printer that prints pizza. Yeah! Evidently, it doesn't taste very good. Oh! Oh. But it's fun to watch and a change from the other food they've got. Just wanted to share. And she sent us a a YouTube video link. And, uh, yeah, printed pizza. Printed, printed pizza. We're almost there. We're almost to the future that we kept seeing as yeah, kids. That, that that extruded pizza that every child dreamed of. Back to the Future 2 where they put like the, the, <laughs> oh, <laughs> the, yeah. the little thing in the microwave and then pizza Just, came boop. out. <laughs> yeah. Almost there. Almost, Almost there. Working towards it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan wrote in, I was listening to your quiche episode and you mentioned sexism in food. I actually have an experience with this. I'm a guy and me and my girlfriend went out with a couple of friends of ours. One guy, one girl. The place we went offers custom-made pizzas. Both ladies got regular crust. Uh, my girlfriend got a couple of meat toppings and one veggie, if I remember. I got a wheat crust and mostly veggies. For the other couple, the guy can't have gluten and prefers veggie pizzas and got a pizza to match. His girlfriend essentially got a meat lover's pizza. When we were served, the pizzas were set so the ladies' and guys' pizzas were swapped. And we can only guess it was because they assumed the men had gotten the meat pizzas and not the healthier crust and topping options. No harm, no foul, but it was funny to all of us that apparently pizza toppings are gendered. Sorry for the long email about pizza sexism, but I thought it was funny that foods are still considered gendered sometimes. 
even pizza is not safe from sexism. Right. Oh, I mean, I get that. I, I get that with drinks all the time. Oh, yeah. Because I'm always ordering just like whiskey. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. They're like, clearly this little lady hasn't ordered she, that. She meant vodka <laughs> or maybe a Pinot Grigio. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole stereotype about that, about darker liquors and beers being for men and lighter colors being for women. That for- we Fruity drinks, yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. revisit that sometime. Ooh. Oh, yay. Ooh. Yay. Sexism and alcohol. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, thank you so much for writing in. Yes. And if you other listeners or the you would like to write us again. Yeah. Yeah, oh, man. absolutely. That's the best. Uh, we have an email address. It is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com. We also are on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Foodstuff HSW. We're also on Instagram at Foodstuff. We hope to hear from you. We're very, very glad that our producer, Dylan Fagan, is with us. He's delightful. Oh. And we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R I T E R U G.com today to schedule a free in home estimate or to find a location near you. 24 month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.